This is Wide Margins Episode 18, Asleep. Last episode, we were introduced to Samson's parents, Manoa and his wife, as we begin this, I think it's going to turn out to be a trilogy on the life of Samson. There are a lot of stories in here, and I'm very excited to cover them. Last week's episode was very interesting, as we saw Samson's parents entertaining angels unawares, to use the wording of Hebrews 13. Actually, it was an angel of the Lord unaware, Um, but the point was they were not conscious to the spiritual realities facing them. How could they be? The angel had not revealed himself at the first. When he did, they eventually came to accept that they were speaking to God himself and were horrified by that idea, afraid that they were so unholy that they would be consumed by God's wrath for their encounter with this angel of the Lord. Fortunately, God was gracious, and he was more interested in using them for his purposes than consuming him them in his wrath. Still, unawareness can be a problem. When we're not aware of the spiritual realities around us, we miss out on opportunities. As we said in the last episode, awareness is equal to compassion. Uh, you're only as compassionate as you are aware. If you are unconscious to the opportunities and the needs around you, you're just walking around with blinders on, you're not going to be much good to God or anybody else. So we need to open our eyes and be more aware and be more focused, of course, on Christ. We go from that problem, which is relatively a minor problem, to something far greater in this episode. We're progressing or regressing, however you want to look at it, from unaware to asleep. And it was Samson who was asleep. We'll find him literally asleep on the knees of Delilah near the end of this episode. And it proves to be a huge problem for Samson. Just as a reminder, we're in cycle number seven of the book of Judges. There are seven cycles, so we're in the last cycle. Samson is the twelfth judge. There are twelve judges. We're at the last judge. But we have a lot more territory to cover before we complete this series on the judges. And we are talking about sleep. And there are all kinds of sleep in the Bible. If you look through the examples, you'll see different varieties of Of course, there's literal sleep. There's not anything really interesting to talk about there, except that sometimes it's a sign of the peace that God gives to his people. In the Psalms, you'll see things like, I lay down and I slept, for the Lord sustained me, Psalm 3, 5. And in Psalm 4, verse 8, there is gratitude for sleep. Anybody that has suffered from insomnia knows the blessing of sleep, and so there's that literal sleep that indicates a peace and a, um, a, a heart that's not marred by sin. Then there is the sleep of the slothful. That's a very different kind of sleep. In the Proverbs, you have these warnings to sluggards. How long will you sleep, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Uh, so that's Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Next, you come to... And the sleep of death. Uh, sleep was a euphemism for death to make it 
a little more palatable if that's possible. Uh, I'm thinking about the example where Paul says he doesn't want his readers to be ignorant and grieve as others who have no hope in the face of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul, I think more than any, spoke of the dead as being asleep, but the Lord did as well. You'll remember he told his disciples that Lazarus was asleep and they go to wake him. And the disciples were a little dense on that occasion and didn't realize that he was talking about Lazarus's death until he finally came out and plainly said he is dead. So there is the euphemism for death. It's used that way as well. In Jeremiah and in other places, uh, sleep is used for judgment, God's judgment. And, and I'm talking about eternal sleep, you know, final sleep, sleep that lasts forever. I'm trying to get over to the example in Jeremiah 51, near the end of the book there, where this kind of imagery is used in verses 37 through 38. Um, they shall roar together like lions, they shall growl like lions' cubs. While they are inflamed, I will prepare them a feast and make them drunk that they may become merry. Then sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, declares the Lord. I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of sleep that I look forward to. Don't want that kind of sleep at all. Finally, there's the sleep of the careless, or the sleep of the apathetic. This is the kind of sleep that the Lord warns against to his disciples in Mark chapter 13, where he pleads with them to stay awake, not knowing when the hour will come. Speaking of the second coming, uh, Paul does the same thing starting out 1 Thessalonians 5, talking about how the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then later in verse 6, he says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Samson slept in this last category. He was not of the day, unfortunately. As we see him here, he is of the night, asleep, not sober, in any stretch of the imagination, and in great trouble by the end of today's episode. We're covering three chapters in this episode, and whenever I'm covering that much territory, I try to get a good outline of some kind this is a narrative, so I think the best way to do this is to split it up into seven different episodes. I know that's a lot, but let me run through them, and then maybe as I survey more slowly through the story, you'll be able to follow along having these in your mind. We're going to call them by the name of the most interesting feature in each episode, and those of you who have studied the Book of Samson for a long time will pick up on the meaning behind each of these these uh, features. So, number one, you have the riddle. Number two, the foxes. Number three, this is my favorite one, the hip and thigh. You'll understand that in a little bit. Uh, number four, the jawbone. Number five, the water. Number six, the gate. And number seven, the hair. And that's the last one. We're going to stop there. If, if we're able to get that far, that's a lot. 
and I'll try not to take too much time in covering it, but let's go all the way back to the top of chapter 14 to start with the riddle. Now, as it opens up, there are a few key terms here. Look at verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah. Timnah was in the region of the Philistines, and you'll remember that at this stage in Israel's history, the, Phil- the Philistines are the oppressors of Israel. So he's going down into the enemy territory. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Something you need to understand is, number one, throughout chapter 13, the term woman is used 19 times. And although Samson's mother is never given by name, She is the one the story is all about. The angel of the Lord would not come to her husband, Manoah. He kept coming to her. And in the book of Judges, women are shown to be powerful, influential, pivotal. Um, They're very important characters, which rubs against the culture of that day. Here again, you see an emphasis upon the woman, the first common noun in chapter 14 is woman. I know the English translation doesn't read that way, but the emphasis is upon the woman. And the first spoken word in the Hebrew that we have of Samson is the word woman. And he says, I saw her. Now this is another key term. I saw for a couple of reasons. You'll remember the key verse of the book of Judges is recorded in the last verse of the book and also in Judges chapter 17 verse 6 every man did what was right in his own eyes he wasn't looking to the word of the Lord or the direction of God or what was right in God's eyes he wasn't trying to see as the Lord sees every person he wasn't trying to see as other people see there was no empathy every man did what was right in his own eyes And here, look what Samson is saying. I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then later in verse 3, he says, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. And then verse 7, he says it again, or the narrator says, She was right in Samson's eyes. The, The similarity of that to the key verse of Judges cannot be a coincidence. Samson is afflicted by the problem that that goes through that that runs through the entire book of Judges. He is thinking only from his own perspective and not from God's. He is asleep to God's ways. Those are a couple of key terms I wanted to point out to you, and it also sets the stage for this first episode of the riddle. His parents protest they don't want him to marry a daughter of the Philistines for obvious reasons. They're oppressing Israel. They're supposed to be fighting the Philistines. Uh, The narrator points out in verse 4 that the Philistines ruled over Israel, but he also says that Samson's father and mother did not know, see they're unaware, that it was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. I don't understand that verse. That's one of the most puzzling verses in the book of Judges because what follows is full of violence and terror 
I won't get ahead of myself and reveal all of that now. But somehow, Samson's disobedience in marrying a foreign wife in Philistia, his refusal to listen to his parents, the bloodshed that results from this decision Samson is making, is described as being from the Lord and as an opportunity the Lord was seeking against the Philistines. I thought about trying to go into an explanation of that, digging that up, but I don't really have a good one, and I'm okay with that. I think too often we try to gloss over the mysterious and the strange and the dangerous sides of God, and the atheists are pulling us into this. If you've been paying attention The atheists have changed their arguments quite a bit, and they have gained traction in the world by doing this. In the past, in the 20th century in particular, they would try for rational arguments against the existence of God. They would talk about the problem of suffering, but they would talk about that rationally, and they would speak of other things, you know, related to science and what we can't prove and things like that, and try to argue rationally against the existence of God. I don't see them doing that as much. I'm not saying they're not doing that at all. But what they're doing more so today is basically just saying, God is mean. The God of the Bible is mean. And they're trying to turn public sentiment against God because he's not politically correct or whatever. And they don't like a God who is dangerous and strange. But if you take away what appears to us to be strangeness in God and the mystery of God. You don't have God. You have a human being or a God made in man's image. I think I'm going to change the way I approach these arguments uh, from here on out. Instead of you know trying to say, well, you know, man does one thing and God can turn it into something else. Going into these long explanations, I'm just going to accept that God does things I don't understand. And he's doing it here. And that's okay. Because he's God, and I'm man, and I don't know what he's up to all the time. I'm not qualified to know. I'm not able to know. And that's just the way that it is. Samson has one idea. His parents have another idea. And God has another idea. So Samson, his mom and dad, they all go to Timnah. And they come to these vineyards. And you remember... The Nazarite vow was not to come into contact with a grape, the skin of a grape, wine, a vineyard. And in this vineyard, Samson, somehow he's become isolated from his parents. He encounters a lion, and he tears the lion with his bare hands as one tears a young goat. I found that comparison to be interesting because I don't tear goats either, but evidently for what some people, as easy as it was for some people to tear goats, that's how easy it was for Samson to tear a lion up with his bare hands. He didn't tell his mom or dad about it because that brought him into contact with a dead body, but he went on his way. Samson was very secretive. He had all kinds of secrets. He'd keep secrets from his wives. He'd keep secrets from his parents. He would try to keep secrets from the people around him. But God knew all of this was going on. So some days later, he returns to check out this lion, and he sees that there's honey in the carcass of the lion. 
Now, it might not have been bad for him to kill the lion, but it was certainly wrong for him to return to the lion's dead body. This was a violation of the Nazarite vow. And he scrapes the honey out of this dead carcass and eats it as he goes. And of course, he didn't tell anybody about it. He gets to this feast that's being held. It's a seven-day feast in honor of his wedding. And they're telling riddles. And he says, I have a riddle. If you can answer this riddle, I will give you 30 pieces of clothing. If you can't answer it, you give me 30 changes of clothes. And the riddle was unfair, because here it is. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. We, being the reader, are in on this, and we know what the answer to the riddle is. But if you look at that riddle, it's not a fair riddle. I don't know if, if you go to riddle competitions or if you do this a lot. My kids like to tell riddles, and often there's some clue in the riddle that you can answer the riddle with. There has to be something like that for it to be fair in this kind of contest. If people are still having these these days, I haven't been to one myself. But there's nothing in here to reveal this is an unfair riddle. And after three days, his friends, or the companions they hired to come and celebrate with him, are getting irritable about this. And they don't want to give him the clothes because it's not a fair riddle. So they start pressing Samson's wife, saying, tell us the secret to the riddle, or we'll burn you and your father and your house down in flames. I can't judge the wife too much here because, I don't know, one of my greatest fears is being burned alive and that might make me do a lot of crazy things too. So she begins to press Samson and finally gets the answer from him, which she goes and tells to her people. And on the seventh day of the feast, before the sun went down, at the very last minute, they answered the riddle, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And in anger, Samson said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, another territory of the Philistines, struck down thirty men of the town, took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who explained the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house while his wife was given to somebody else. Episode 1. This is how it continues. You'll see in every one of these episodes the Philistines having a problem, coming up with a solution, and Samson upturning their solution each time. So we move to the second one. Chapter 15, Samson hasn't given up on this woman from Timnah. He still sees her as his wife. Her father, however, has given her over to one of his companions. So he's very angry about this. And in verse 4, we read that he takes 300 foxes and torches and turn them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing corn of the Philistines, and set fire to the stacked corn, and to the standing corn as well as to the olive orchards. 
all of their valuable crops burned down by this ingenious, uh, I'm not going to call it ingenious, I'm going to call it cruel, okay? Because, again, I don't like being burned alive. I don't think even animals enjoy that kind of thing. And we've got foxes with their tails tied together. How do you do that? How do you catch 300 foxes? And then how do you tie their tails together? I was just out on my back porch trying to spray this flea repellent on my cat. And that was a traumatic experience in itself. I can't imagine capturing wild foxes, tying their tails together, putting a torch in between the tails, and then releasing them out into the cornfields or whatever. But, um, I mean, how about just taking a torch and personally torching the crops yourself? That seems a lot easier. Whatever his thoughts behind it, it was an effective means of getting revenge, which made the inhabitants of Timna extremely angry. They blamed it on his father-in-law and his wife and burned them with fire as he burned their crops with fire. That leads us to the next episode, the hip and the thigh. In verse 6, Samson, or in verse 7, he says, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. I don't know what that phrase means, struck them hip and thigh. I think literally it reads uh, something about the bone below the knee and the bone above the knee. So he struck them with the entire leg. It's some kind of idiom that means he laid a whooping on them. He took them out. There was no contest. He was the great champion. With a great blow, he struck them down. But you see the anger, the vengeance, he is totally out of control. And he is asleep to his purpose and really to God. Now, God is using him, but Samson doesn't seem to be in this for God or anybody but himself. It's all about vengeance, which leads us to the next episode. Episode 4, The Jawbone. The Philistines make a raid on Judah. Now they're in Israelite territory, and the men of Judah come to Samson because they know this is uh, retaliation against what Samson did to the Philistines. And they ask him for permission to tie him up. And he asks them if they mean to do any harm to him. And they say, no, we're just trying to pacify the Philistines. So he allows them to tie him up with new ropes. And when the Philistines come upon him in a place called Lehi, which means jawbone, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were in his arms became as flax that has caught fire. And the bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. And the place was named Ramath Lehi, the hill of the jawbone. That brings us to episode 5, The Water. Samson gets really thirsty from all of this fighting and killing people. 
And he calls upon the Lord and he says, This reminds me of the Israelites in the wilderness. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And so God split open the hollow place in a rock that's at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. And so we have at this point the message, the little footnote there, that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. That'll be repeated again at the end of the story. Next, we come to the gate. This is chapter 16. He's now in another city of the Philistines called Gaza, and he sees a prostitute. Remember how chapter 14 began, where he saw a woman. He sees a prostitute. Samson did what was right in his eyes. So he's seeing and still taking what he wants based upon his lust and upon his eyes. And this prostitute is someone he desired. He stays with her all night. And the people of Philistia find out about it and they see an opportunity to kill him. So they wait and wait. He doesn't come out. They decide to wait until morning. But Samson steals out at midnight and takes hold of the doors of the gate of the city. By the two posts, he pulls them up, bar and all, puts them on his shoulders and carries them to the top of the hill in front of Hebron. He does something beyond just escaping here. He takes down their protection, their defenses. The gates were so important to a city. Now they're open for attack because of what he's done. Every time they try to thwart his purposes, he escapes and does them damage. And this is the theme that continues until we get to the final episode regarding the hair. Samson, as a result of these, this Nazarite vow, had these seven locks of hair that had never, ever been cut. I don't know how old Samson is at this point, but his hair has got to be very long. He falls in love with another woman named Delilah, another Philistine, who gets him into trouble. And the people have influence with her. Not so much as a threat, but they offer her money. Verse 5 says, The lords of the Philistines came to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. So she begins to entice him through every seductive measure she has to try to find out the source of his power and why he is able to thwart them every time, every turn. So he starts playing with her and having a little fun, telling her different things. First he says, take seven fresh bowstrings, tie me up, and I can't escape. But whenever he falls asleep and she ties him up with the seven fresh bowstrings, he snaps them in two, just like he did with the new ropes in the episode with the jawbone. And then she says, how could you do this to me? She starts enticing him again, and he tells her, well, take new ropes and tie me up, and I cannot escape. And he falls asleep. She ties him up. He breaks free whenever the Philistines come upon him and fools them again. Now, at this point... She ought to be catching on, and he ought to be catching on. I don't understand how this works. But she continues to entice him, and he continues to mess with her, telling her, 
Next, weave seven locks with a web or a loom and fasten it with a peg, I assume to the wall, or just fasten it together, and it will take my strength from me. He's getting closer to the truth now because he's involving his hair. She tries this. He wakes up, pulls the weave out, and defeats the Philistines again. Surely he knows where this is going. She is doing, he tells her the secret of his strength, and she does it every time. He's got this secret. Nobody else knows it. There's no chance of him being harmed. All he has to do is keep his mouth shut. But Samson, who is so good at keeping secrets, finally gives up the secret of his strength. The source of my strength, he says, is my hair. A razor has never touched my head. If you cut my hair, I'll lose my strength. He falls asleep on her knees, and in his sleep, she cuts his hair. And when he awakens, he awakens to a new world he had never been in before. This is really sad. As soon as she calls the man to come shave off the seven locks of his head, as soon as she does this, Delilah, verse 19 says, began to torment him, and his strength left him. She never loved him, never cared for him. He was so foolish, literally asleep on her knees, but also in a spiritual sense. In, a, in an emotional sense, he was asleep. He was totally ignorant of what was going on. And when she awoke him, he found that the strength had left him. The Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza, bound him in bronze shackles, and they began to be entertained by him as the former champion of the Israelites ground mill in the prison. There's one little glimmer of hope in verse 22 that the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. We'll stop there with Sleeping Samson. I want to end with a reading from Mira Scleru's poem, The Skin of Sleep. The skin of sleep is thin. It will not hold. Its contents stumble out. A nub of bone lodged in earth at the bottom of a pit, a stranger staring down from the rim. The skin of sleep is thin. It cannot hold. Next week, Samson wakes up on wide margins. <laughs>